Welcome to the Like a Bigfoot podcast, episode number 50 with Ryan Duplassie. I hope I said that right. <laughs> and guys, I'm fast approaching my goal of doing a podcast every single week for an entire year. And I gotta say, it feels pretty good. <laughs> so um, yeah, 50 is a big deal. I'm excited to, to share this episode with you guys. And uh, if you've been listening and you've listened to to you know multiple episodes of the show, thank you. That's awesome. I love it. I appreciate it. This has brought such good things to my life and kind of, if I'm going to be honest, has made me realize that maybe I'm not as shy as I thought. <laughs> Which uh, you're kind of forced outside your shyness comfort zone when you're chatting with people, you know, you've never met or people you've only met a few times. Um, yeah, so it's been great. I, I am honored and grateful uh, that you guys are listening. So thank you for that. Which uh, kind of brings us to, the, to today's guest, uh, Ryan. So this one is going to be a little bit different. Um, it's not necessarily about endurance sports or outdoor sports or anything like that um it actually kind of came along naturally in a in a strange way so earlier this summer in june me and my dad went fishing um in ontario canada to uh, an area called grassy narrows and for me this was my second time being up uh in grassy narrows which is on the english river um though we had gone up to that area for quite some time. Basically, I've been going to Ontario ever since I was a little boy to go fishing with my dad. And, and uh, you know, they've been some really amazing experiences, some of the best times I've had with my dad in my life. So um, it's kind of a special, special area. And for the last two times, anyways, I've gone up to Grassy Narrows, which is on a First Nation uh, community which um, for us Americans, we can kind of imagine that as like a Native American reservation. Um, and so, yeah, so we've gone up there a few years, really enjoyed it. It's basically what you would imagine when you're imagining pristine, wild Canadian woods. You know what I mean? The Canadian forests or like lake country where there's evergreen trees everywhere. There's just like, a million different lakes in this giant watershed and you're seeing all sorts of wildlife so everything you can imagine i've seen bears caribou um moose loons which are awesome so canada you have a really good national bird loons are the best um and uh it's just honestly the ontario lakes might possibly be the area that caused me to fall in love with the outdoors because I was spending, you know, a whole week at a time, just throwing myself into the wilderness there and really, you know, having time to go out and explore and have adventures and, and all these things. So I really love this area. My dad's been going here even longer than that. And so all that being said, the last night of our fishing trip, as we're cooking up the fish, filleting them, putting them on the fire. You got to grill them. Grilled walleyes, nothing tastes better. We 
are joined at our campsite, which had previously been unoccupied by anybody except us, with Ryan's class. So essentially, he's teaching a class, a group of about 20 students, and they're native studies, so they're going to live in or camp in this area and study the First Nation community that lives there. And Ryan came over to our campsite, and we just started chatting with him, and he kind of dropped some knowledge on us and kind of completely shatters my mind and maybe my perception of the area we're in. Basically what he informs us, and we'll get into it a lot in the podcast, so I'm not going to talk too much about it here. But basically, in the 1960s, a paper mill just dumped massive amounts of pollution in the English River watershed. And... Basically, it took away the community, it took away their livelihood, how they make money, and it took away a major source of food and protein. In fact, the English River is one of the most mercury-poisoned rivers in the whole world. Now, I gotta say, I felt a bit embarrassed with how uninformed I was. And I also, I mean, I'm eating this fish as I'm learning about this. And it's a little bit scary. I'm going to be honest with you. And the more I thought about the stuff Ryan told us, just at that campsite, it was like 20 minutes, the more I couldn't get out of my head. So I knew as soon as I got home, I was going to send him an email and ask him to be on the show. Mostly just so I could become better informed because like i said it was i was almost ashamed with how uninformed i was about this issue about how it's affected the people that live there and honestly i mean i'm eating the fish that are very polluted and possibly could affect my body so um which is you know like i said it's a little shameful to even admit that i didn't know these problems and so today's episode, we have Ryan on the show. Um, it's very interesting, very informative, and ultimately, he has a very optimistic message. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, thank you guys once again for listening. Um, if you can find all of our episodes on SoundCloud or on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, yeah, so... Get ready, buckle up, uh, <laughs> uh, like a Bigfoot, number 50, Ryan Duplassie. All right, so I wanted to welcome you to the podcast, Ryan, and I'm super excited, really grateful that you agreed to do this. My um, pleasure. Yeah. Uh I guess the reason, so a little backstory and, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I usually do an intro before I start these things. So I'll probably uh-huh. put a lot of the backstory in the intro, but basically my dad and I were up, um, on a fishing trip about 40 miles North of Kenora, Ontario, uh, to a place we've been a few times. I've been there like one other time before, and he's been going up to that area in one sense or the other for about 20 years now. Um, and it was our last day and you had just arrived, uh, 
with a group of 20 or some college students for like a 10-day field course to study the First Nation community. And, you know, we just we were chatting with you for 20 minutes and you kind of <laughs> enlightened us and opened our eyes on some of the environmental and governmental issues affecting this area, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, uh, you know, I could tell right away you were a really great teacher. Um, I think even as you walked away, or I might have told some of your students, you know, like, man, I wish, like, that guy seems like he really knows his stuff, is passionate about the topic, and, you know, I wish I could go back in time to college and take his class. <laughs> hey, it's not too late, buddy. No, well, so that was my, you know, <laughs> that was kind of my uh, reasoning where I'm like, oh, I have this podcast, I couldn't get the story of Grassy Narrows kind of out of my head for, I mean, I still haven't been able to. That was about a month ago. And so, you know, I was like, I should just use this as an excuse to get in touch with them. You know, I'm not going to pretend like I know every single thing about this issue or anything like that um, because I kind of just want to learn more about it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> yeah. Well, I know it's 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 good for it's good for your podcast, and it, it bodes well for the community as well. I mean, the more people that know of not necessarily Grassy Narrows in particular, but Grassy Narrows serves, you know, in my view, as a kind. Of, unfortunately, it serves as a sort of a microcosm for all the types of uh, social, political, legal, and environmental challenges that that face a lot of our indigenous communities in North America. You know, so it's uh, the things that I speak of um, in the next little while with you. Uh, in regards to Grassy Narrows, really could be copy and pasted to so many other communities. Um, so it's you know I, th I think it's uh, it's good for your your listeners to to be sort of surprised as to what's going on in these communities. Yeah, well, and that's also you know when I got when I got back from there, I was just thinking like, and what is some way where I could make some sort of difference, even if it's you know not a giant difference, but what's a way where I could make a small, you know. If there's enough people making a small wave, maybe something will actually, you know, people will be informed and maybe some things will change possibly. So one hopes, yes, that's yeah. the hope, right? Um, and so yeah, we'll get into that. But first, I kind of want to hear about your background because you know, this morning as I was preparing for the podcast, I typed your name into Google, did a little research, and kind of read about some of your background and how you became interested in. Uh, in native studies and and all the things that you're passionate about sure um well to start with so my father's side we are uh, anishinaabe uh which i think in stateside you you call ojibwe or chippewa sometimes okay further to the east yeah um great lakes region yeah yeah and um and so you know just sort of understanding uh myself and navigating my my way through the world as an Anishinaabe, but clearly a mixed person, um, and sort of having to navigate certain identity politics really got me interested in in what it was to be an Indigenous person. Because um, I always felt that, you know, I grew up in a very small town on the North Shore of Lake Superior called White River. And uh, um, it's it a small forestry town, you know, my father was a welder there in the mill. And uh, he is... Um, a registered Indian with uh, the neighboring First Nation called Pickmobert First Nation. And, you know, that's sort of their ancestral stomping grounds, if you will, up in that, in that area. 
And, you know, I'd always felt a, a deep connection to that land and, and, and that feeling of home. You know, I think we all share a sense of that feeling of home, um, knowing that, uh, you know, we had been there for countless generations, really sort of, I think in a, at a very young age, kind of maybe very sensitive to uh, ensuring that, you know, the water that we drink is clean because we go out and we're fishing, you know, and we go yeah. out and we're, we're hunting. And we're, you know, oftentimes you're, you're dipping into the stream and you need to be able to be able to drink that water. So things like that were very important to me. And then um, as I, you know, got a little bit older as, and, you know, I went to university um, as a young man, I started getting tuned into some of the environmental issues that were coming to bear, um, particularly there's a lot of politics often in Canada around um, clear-cut logging, for example. Um, and there were some high-profile, in my early 20s, there were some high-profile incidents that had happened uh, in Canada regarding um, sort of land and water defense, indigenous land and water defense uh, challenges that had been happening. I kind of started cluing into that kind of thing. And then I started to realize that, you know, our ecological challenges really are our social challenges, you know, because these all of these things are, are a result of policy and around economics and the types of decisions that we as human beings make. And so I became very, very interested to kind of, you know, parse out how is it that um, the social politics between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples, uh, how those play out in different forms of exploitation, I guess. So exploitation of people, exploitation of the environment, and how is it that uh, these things have formed uh, and formulated into policy that uh, has created the the world that we're in now where we're sort of this, um, oftentimes you've got two sides um, that are pitched against each other. Um, you Which know, is very unfortunate. We, we, you know, as well, it is unfortunate. You know, we always have we have the, we have concerns around you know the economy. We always want you always want a growing and robust economy, um, but sort of the way our economics are set up is predicated on this notion of uh, limitless growth. And of course, we don't have limitless resources. You know, and so you run up against um, you know. Well, we're all aware of uh, of, of all the ecological implications for. Uh, when you have too much uh, intensive extraction going on in concentrated areas and how that affects the people on the ground who live there was something that I was always uh, always interested in. And uh, and when I moved here to Winnipeg um, to, to do this PhD, I'm in Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's about three and a half hour drive from Grassy Narrows. Okay. Um, I, uh, I got clued into an activist group here um, that was comprised loosely of, you know, sort of um, grassroots activists and academics and uh, community organizers and not-for-profit sort of folks and politicians, as well as just regular citizens who were in solidarity, I guess you would say, with Grassy Narrows around um, the fact that they were, uh, uh, they had set up a logging blockade, a blockade of uh, against clear-cut logging coming out of Kenora um, starting in 2002. And so there's, there's a, a group here called Friends of Grassy Narrows um, that, uh, that I quickly got hooked into. And then once I started meeting more of the people, I realized, you know, there's a lot to be talked about here and there's a lot to be explored. And, um, and so I decided to focus my doctoral research 
on trying to parse out what's what's happening in this community here on on all of those levels, the social, political, ecological, and legal levels, and uh, and so that's where I where I'm at now. I'm uh, I'm writing my dissertation as we speak. So, um, you know, I'll, I hope to be finished uh, coming up. But that's that's been the focus of my research. Wow. So, have you all had you always wanted to be a professor, or did you feel called? to um like did you, do you feel called as like this is a way i can kind of make my voice heard and help out yeah well you know it, uh, to be perfectly honest with you i had never really aspired to be a professor um it just happened sort of as things do um it was almost coincidental where i you know i was uh, I had finished certain portions of my doctoral program and my department needed some people to fill in teaching some classes. And, um, and I have a teaching degree. I have a, a bachelor's of education from, okay. from uh, uh, an Ontario university. And I had some experience teaching in the public school system. And, uh, and so they gave me some classes to teach and, and they worked out well. And so I just continued. Um, and then when I got, uh, when I got hooked in with Brassy, um, I realized that, uh, you know, I need to bring people here, you know, I need to get out of the classroom and, uh, there's only so much that you can accomplish with, with books and articles. And, and I think, you know, anytime that you're able to form relationships, uh, between students and communities that you're talking about or reading about, um, it's good to do so because we're only three and a half hours away. I set up the program where I would bring students two grassy narrows and we could actually meet the people and we could experience the land and the water for ourselves and uh and it would be much more of an enriching experience that way well, and uh, and that's where i met you yeah but whether this is going to turn into a professor type job um is on is still unclear okay um, <laughs> the nice the nice thing about that i mean the pro the process of you know when you do doctoral research and you and you kind of expand your network there are uh there are, are a number of opportunities for sort of doing doing work and being of service, as you say, that doesn't necessarily necessitate becoming a tenured professor at an institution. Um, what it is that I want to do is exactly what you saw me doing. I want to bring yeah. students um, out to meet with different communities and bring them out on the land and show them the value of that and the value of communication and forming those relationships. And that's what I've resolved to do with my career and how it is that I affect that is uh, something I'm working on right now. Um, it may be at a university and it may not be. Um, so we'll see. Gotcha. Well, see, and and that's the thing I think that affected me so much. So, you know, I, I always remember I, I've been going up to Ontario in in different areas of Ontario, but to Ontario since I was a little kid. And we go up once a year and, you know, it's just I, I've made so many great memories with the environment there i mean it's a unbelievably gorgeous place like you see a sunset up on a lake in ontario and it'll just blow your mind and you know it really is something else it is and you know especially specifically grassy narrows i mean it's 40 miles north of kenora which is like the nearest city so you're driving up this windy road in the middle of the you know, Ontario woods and it's completely beautiful. You're seeing all sorts of animals and wildlife. And I mean, and then, so then when you came along and told us some of these environmental concerns like clear cutting, and then we'll get to the water issues in a second. But I think that's what affected me because 
if you do go up into that area, you do feel a connection with the land because the land is the most, I don't know, like visceral thing there, you know? Sure, um, absolutely. And not to mention when you meet people of the Grassineros community and they're just the nicest, you know, nicest, helpful, most helpful people um, that have been unfortunately just kind of screwed over, you know, uh, not even kind of. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, so yeah, so I, I could not just, I couldn't get some of the information out of my head. And, you know, we were talking before this podcast, it's a little embarrassing that the amount, um, like the limited amount of information I knew uh, going up there, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, uh, if, you know, it's a vacation spot and, uh, uh, you know, obviously for people who are coming from stateside, um, and it's a place where you're going to go up and, and go fishing. I mean, um, you know, it's not necessarily that strange. So you wouldn't uh, try to Google all the politics surrounding the space where you're entering. But I'm really, really glad that you're switched on to that because I think that that's, that's part of the pedagogy of what it is that I, what I do when I bring the students there is that, you know, we are entering um, these spaces that are fraught with political and, and ecological um, challenges, you know, that are that that we could do it, you know, we should take very seriously and, and, and learn about. But I certainly, uh, you know, I wouldn't fault somebody, for, you know, you can't know everything about everything for goodness sake. Yeah, you know, you work hard enough. It's it's nice to be able to just go up and go fishing too. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So can we kind of get into some of the issues uh, uh, that have been going on around Grassy Narrows? Absolutely. So. Um, you know, I've done this so many times that you think that I would uh, be able to uh, whip it off in seven sentences. But, well, uh, you know, I'm the guy um, who's like calling you up in the middle of summer, being like, "Hey, can you uh, just do all your courses again, real quick?" <laughs> sure. Well, you know what? Um, you know what I think might be of value uh, to be able to arrive right up to right up to where the present here is, is to do a really quick chronology. Okay, if, if that works. Yeah. Um, okay. So, super quick chronology is um, Canada. Canada became a, a country in 1867, um, where some provinces confederated and decided to form a nation because they didn't want those pesky Americans expanding northward. Yeah. And so they uh, they resolved to to lay a railroad uh, east to west, and uh, you know from sea from sea to shining sea, as we say, and. Uh, uh, they needed passage through, um, quote, Indian country. And so they decided that they would need to, uh, well, it wasn't decided, it was because of a previous law, they, they, had, to, they had to negotiate treaties. And so in 1873, the federal government of Canada, uh, which at that time was representing the, the, the crown, the, 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 the Queen of England, um, negotiated a peace treaty with the the Anishinaabe or, or I guess the Ojibwe, the Chippewa of that area, of uh, the uh, Kenora area there. And um, the sort of a key to understanding what the treaties mean is that, you know, from the indigenous standpoint, the treaties were an agreement to allow for safe passage, um, some settlement and some industry to be set up on the territory. Um in exchange for peace and and also in exchange for 
certain services. So, for example, they knew that, you know, the so-called white man was going to be coming in and that uh, Indigenous people were going to need to know how to read and write so that they wouldn't get, they wouldn't be cheated. And that's actually a quote. Yeah. Um, so that they wouldn't be cheated by the white man. And, uh, you know, they, they knew that they would have to sort of figure out how to live together. And so they, they asked for some education. Um, they realized that, uh, you know, they may want to start up some 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 uh, more substantial farming practices. So they, they asked for some uh, assistance with uh, maybe getting some oxen and some different agricultural implements and et cetera. And they always, whenever you look at the treaties, you you always see that uh, they always maintained, the Anishinaabe people always maintained that they wanted to, they're very adamant that they wish to maintain the life ways of their ancestors. And so you'll see written to the treaties that there's always the right to hunt, trap, and fish, and to gather uh, seasonally, yeah? Yeah. Um, and I think that in the States you have that as well. Um, they, there's, there, there are some sort of uh, special conditions attached to having Indian status in the United States as well, I'm sure, in terms of hunting and that kind of thing. Um, I, you're sure. you're going to be the expert on that. I like I said, I'm oh, going okay. I'm going into this with like okay. kind of base knowledge, sort of. Right. Okay. Well, here uh, here because of the, because of that the stipulation in the treaty, we have what what are called treaty rights, um, and and they are able to live in the manner of their ancestors. So that's it's, that's key. That's a key premise, because what happened is as soon as not 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 even as soon as the ink was dry on that treaty that was signed in 1873, the Crown, uh, which is what we call the uh, the government offices in, in Ottawa, the Crown decided that it uh, that, that the treaty um, was not an agreement to share the land, but in in fact it was uh, an agreement to quote surrender, yield up, cede, and release all rights, titles, and privileges to that space. So how, how could they, how could they, I mean, like, I, I, is this, are they illegally saying this or how can they legally just change the, well, they can legally say that because they, because they have the military to back it up. You see. Okay. Um, so it was, it's so what essentially what happened was the the crown interpreted um, the land surrender as being complete, and that the crown had jurisdiction over all of the lands, which is one thing, but then it also took upon themselves to have to grant itself jurisdiction over the people, you see, and so it, it overlaid this sort of Canadianness the, the, uh, by signing the treaty the. Uh, the, the Anishinaabe people were suddenly to be absorbed into this notion of a Canadian politic, if you will. Okay. So how do you do that? Well, you know, at that time as well, you know, uh, there, there's, there was quite uh, the evangelical fervor happening throughout, uh, you know, the States and in Canada. Um, there were a lot of missionaries um, amongst the, the so-called Indians everywhere. And they felt that the Indians needed to be civilized. And they would never be able to be civilized um, if they were not Christian, and they would never be able to, to be Christianized nor civilized if they were allowed to live in the manner of their ancestors. And so what they did was they orchestrated the, the residential school system in the, in the states you called the boarding schools, yeah? yeah? Indian boarding schools. Yeah, yeah. And they systematically went in and extricated all of the children from their families, their family units, and life on the land, and they brought them to these uh, 
Christian-run um, institutions to be to be educated. Um, but you know, and that's kind of a long story in there as well because they, the education that they received was um, extremely basic, if if that. Yeah. Um, if, uh, in many cases, they were child laborers, and there was a lot of abuse that happened in those schools in terms of sexual, emotional, mental, physical abuse. And a lot of children died in those schools as well. But uh, and, and that became law in 1892 that uh, the children had they were it was mandatory for all indigenous children to go to residential schools. So what happened is you have seven successive generations in the Kenora area of children growing up without their parents and growing up not being on the land, and that really disrupted a lot of of the uh, the the knowledge transfer. And and, um, and did they come sort of the cultural? After their quote-unquote schooling, yeah, which yeah. sounds absolutely horrible, but did they move back to the land afterwards? Well, you know, yes. I mean, they they were able to, um, but the thing is, is that they had sort of now now they were uh, sitting on the fence between. You know, they had one foot in the in yeah. the yep. in their homeland and one foot in the white world, and they weren't able to move in either direction. Yeah. Um. So, uh, so that's that's just one example of the ways that they were not permitted to live in the ways of their ancestors, and there are many, many more. Yeah. Um, the uh, the Ontario uh, ministries of now you know it's the Ministry of Natural Resources, but it had many iterations um, in the early days, and the uh, conservation officers would confiscate um, uh, Indigenous people's equipment if they were if they were found to be hunting. Um, or if the uh, if the CEO decided that they had caught too much fish, they would confiscate their gear. Sometimes they were incarcerated, um, et cetera. So just just a total harassment. I mean, essentially, the government just decided that they were going to take over the space, and the indigenous peoples became prisoners in their own land, type of thing. So how are they? Ex- um, if they be- had their hunting equipment taken away, how are they expected to? Like it's a wild area up there. You know, like I said, it's it's 40 miles north of Kenora, the town. And like, I mean, mm-hmm. if you if you didn't have that equipment, how are you expected to survive and like get food for your family? Well, you're expected to get a job. Uh, so that was part of that was part of the way to to sort of punish people so that they uh, were not able to uh, continue to maintain their traditions on that space um it's my it's sort of my pet theory that the the reasons why the reservations in both the united states and canada part of the reason why the reservations are in such squalid conditions in most cases is because it's 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 still a war of attrition going on they want the governments want those places to to be depopulated because if you don't have people living on a reserve you don't have a reason to have an indian reserve and if you don't have an Indian reserve, then you can then you yeah, it's ripe for exploitation, right? The tiny reserve lands that the indigenous peoples do have in North America, um, in some cases, are are quite valuable. Yeah. Uh, but they're the, but they're the, but they're the last sort of like defense uh, for for these communities, yeah. And so, um, yeah, they um, anyway. So. You're, as to your question, you know, what would people do? Well, you know, there, at the same time, of course, there was a there was a fur trade. I don't know if you're familiar with the Hudson Bay Company. Yep. Um, there, there, there was a lot of fur trade companies. So people were trapping 
they they could trap and and sell furs uh, to get their basic implements and that kind of thing. But really, all along the way, um, their rights as Indigenous people were not being recognized, and they were just continually harassed. Um, and then what happened was, uh, like in Grassy Narrow specifically, so we're going chronologically here, um, by the time the the war, the Second World War was finished, um, there started to be, uh, see, one of the ironies with the residential schools was that it created a bunch of Indians who could read and write, right? And then yeah. you had... Now you had a generations coming up of educated Indians or those who could continue their, their educations at universities. And then you started getting Indians with law degrees throughout the 50s and 60s. And that's a no-no. So it's been, it's been the bane of Canadian, Canadian lawmakers' existence uh, since, the, since the 50s and especially throughout the 60s and 70s. We have um, these, these, uh, these bastions of... Uh, of um, um, these cadres, I guess, of very well-educated uh, lawyers coming out of these schools um, that are that understand the, the law and they're advocating for for their right. And so Grassy Grassy Narrows has been a sort of a locus for a hot, and a hotbed for a political uh, sort of uprising since the 60s and 70s. Wow, this is so crazy um, to so me because, is, like I said, I've I've fished there a couple of times, and you know, unless you dig into the history of an area, I mean, the more like the more you dig into the history of an area, the more fascinating it's going to be. And just knowing oh, that, like what you just said, that it was kind of the central like fighting grounds for this political battle, is just fascinating to me. Absolutely, yeah. I would encourage your listeners just to. Uh, just if they have a spare 10, 15 minutes to, to Google um, the uh, Kenora, Ontario occupation of Anishinaabe Park, 1974. And uh, it was a full military standoff. I, I'm not sure, Chris, if you're familiar with uh, the American Indian movement that had swept across uh, the United States and, and Canada in the 60s and 70s. Just like, um, I mean, not... <laughs> not familiar at any level that's oh okay but you yeah. but you'd heard of it i've heard of it yeah yeah so it was kind of like you know it was the age of civil rights and uh black power um you know you had the black panthers and you had uh martin luther king jr and you had malcolm x and all the, all the rest of the folks yeah yeah um and there was a red power movement that grew up alongside the black power movement and in some cases they made some really um and yeah, it was a it was a movement to sort of assert themselves and to just like the Black Power movement and to assert their rights and their dignity. And Grassy Narrows was a hotbed. So yeah, if your listeners are curious, uh, occupation of Anishinaabe Park, 1974, is pretty pretty interesting story. So uh, anyway, what happened was uh, throughout the, those political times they were trying to phase out the residential schools. You know, it was just, it had been so traumatic for the, uh, for the communities. So what the government did then was as they started phasing out residential schools, they, uh, the, the uh, so-called child and family services industry started up. And just like the, your, your social workers that are involved in uh, child welfare. Yeah? yeah. And so they would uh, start pouring into the communities and start to assess, um, the ability of families to be able to care for the children. And of course, 
um, they're coming with their own sort of clipboards with sets of criteria that are set in the cities in these offices. And they're not really understanding the way that um, Anishinaabe people live, right? And so they started uh, what is called the 60 Scoop. And I'm not sure if you'd heard of that, if that's a thing in, in the States that you that you guys speak of. But here we call it the 60 Scoop, and, it, and it's really what it sounds like. Um, starting in the 1960s, the government has uh, started going into communities and uh, taking the children from their families and not bringing them to residential schools, but fostering them out to non-Indigenous families. And the foster care system is an industry that is extremely robust and has continued apace from the 60s until this present day. And in fact, as you and I sit and talk right now, there are more children, Indigenous children, in foster care in Canada than there ever were that passed through the halls of residential schools throughout their entire history. There are over 150,000 Indigenous children fostered out right now. Um, and so this is just, these are, these are sort of legalistic forms of soft genocide, you know, to, to put it, you know, it's, it's the, the disallowing of people to be who they are. And this has been the modus operandus of, of, the, of uh, the Canadian state since its inception. Well, can I, can I ask you um, a quick question real quick? Like, sure. When, sure. You, when you're spending all day researching this, and like, I mean, these are horrible, horrible things that have happened, you know, and you, you go home at night, like, are you able to let, let it, like, let these things go for a few hours? You know, I mean, I just, for me, it'd be, it'd be very difficult to spend all day, you know, immersing yourself in, in these kind of topics. Yes, it is. That's why I'm addicted to stand up comedies <laughs> and like goofy shows like Brooklyn nine, nine, yeah. just something just something to make me giggle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Turn the brain off. For yeah. A you know, exactly. Yeah. No, you have to. And the thing is too, is that well, you've been there and this is, this is something, you know, we'll get back to the chronology in a second, but this is also part of the pedagogy. And that is that, you know, folks like you and your father who go and see these places, you see those sunsets, you see the beauty of the lake and, and the trees, all is not lost. You see the beauty of the people, right? Yeah. Uh, the people that you meet there and the vibrancy that they have and the generosity that they still hold, you know, and despite all of this, all of that that has happened that I, that I described so far, they're still willing to accept people to come and share. And that's beautiful. Yeah. And that's really the, the ethos that runs through all of the indigenous communities I've ever, I've ever uh, been privileged to sort of communicate with. Um, there's always a welcoming spirit. You know, and so uh, I just sort of feel that um, the more information and uh, uh, more ways and strategies that we can use to switch people on to thinking about things uh, in a different way, we can we can turn these around. Like again, these are just policies. Everything I've been describing to you, of course, has a certain racist ethos to it. Yeah, but um, really, is a set of policies, and these can be reversed. You know, so as long as you have some sort of political um, organization, um, uh, and I don't mean you know a registered one necessarily, but I mean that you're organizing politically and you're able to uh, lobby uh, governments and to form different uh, um, formidable uh, voices, groups of voices. Uh, you can really change policy 
and we, we see it over and over and over again. You know, you just have to you have to shout loud and clear and and consistently, and things can turn around. So and for a long um, time, though, like you have, to, is that frustrating? Like it just seems like it takes so long for some of these things to get changed. It does. It absolutely does. And I'm sure in your recent research, and we'll get to that with with the chronology, but uh, you've noticed that um, the province of Ontario finally awarded finally. Well, Finally granted eighty-five million dollars to to start the cleanup of the Wabagoon River that's of the crazy. Mercury. That was po- um, that, well. That's yeah. been a fight that started in nineteen seventy. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just yeah. to me, it's I I'm a very logical. I I think I'm very logical. Like when the things that really upset me in life are things that I think are illogical, and so logically, the fact that it's taken like 40 some years to actually get something done with a with a pollute like a polluted river that it's just crazy to me it just blows my mind that it takes that long yes yes there's a phrase there's a phrase in our uh in our field um and it's uh environmental racism and and what that is is that uh really you will take on an environmental, if you are a person of power, you will take on an environmental initiative only if it suits your sort of bias. And the fact that they're just a bunch of Indians really has been sort of the underlying reason for the neglect for the last 47 years. Like they haven't Uh had necessarily a really loud voice. So why do we need to, you know, why do we even need to take them into consideration? Is it kind of that idea? Well, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's partly, it's partly, it's not even just the voice. I mean, I think that had those been um, white uh, people that had been uh, affected, that things would have moved a lot more quickly. Um, you know, the, the thinking in the 70s, um, and unfortunately still largely pervasive today, is that, you know, um, it's sparsely populated there's just a bunch of sort of small communities of Indian reservations up there and it's too expensive to clean up. And so what are you going to do? Well, but it's like, if I just, you just want to shout at them like, yeah, but they're like, they're human beings. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a small community, like this is human beings being affected directly by your decisions. And it's just, it just blows my mind. (laughs) Sure. No, well, I mean, this is part of the poison that, um, that is racism, right? I mean, like even in the the United States, I mean, with, um, with slavery and that, you know, like the, um, uh, that, uh, you know, black slaves were considered three quarter humans and all this kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, like this notion that there are certain groups of people who are subhuman, um, is a way to rationalize. Uh, being able to do what you will with them and neglect uh, whole groups of people um, if it suits your economic and political agenda, right? Yeah, it's just crazy. Um, have you ever and seen? So that's really what we're dealing with. Have you ever seen the show The Wire? I've not. No. Okay. Well, the thing that as you watch The Wire, kind of the theme, and it's really good. Like, and by really good, I mean it might be one of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, but it, it's the main theme is basically how hard it is to change a system that's already in place. And it goes through it, and, mm-hmm. you know, like the police systems, even like the drug dealer systems, the school systems, political systems and all that. And um, 
there's this great like a great season of it someone's trying to make like a giant change and it doesn't really work because it's just such an upheaval to the system but then there's another person who is making a change on an individual level and i'm thinking of like teachers for instance or like you know you're taking you're taking young people out into the actual area being affected and meeting the actual people and you know from there they're going to spread that message to their friends and families and hopefully take some of their friends and families up there and get them involved and so on and so forth and it's kind of like at an individual level everybody does have that power to change someone's mind or just inform them of something going on that they didn't know um which is kind of yeah. how i feel affected by just meeting you for 20 minutes around the campfire <laughs> yes no i mean and, and that's exactly right chris like i mean and i've i've been switched on too i mean uh you know of course i'm still i'm still a student as you know and i'm uh, what well, we all are, i suppose right and we're we're always learning and um everything becomes uh it's so simple when you're using the logic that, that you're speaking of, um, every, these things like as human beings who we have conscience and we have emotions and all of these things make, make such sense. But at the same time, it's so complex, right? Yeah. Because as you were saying, the machinery is so automatic now, the way that things operate. Um, how do you actually revolutionize without, without sort of the, you know, the 19th century bloody revolutions, like how do you actually change systems so that they're more benign without, um, while, while still assuring that people have their basic necessities and the quality of life and all that. Like it's really, uh, I can't envision it. Um, it's going to take a, it's going to take sort of, unfortunately, I feel it's going to take a series of catastrophes for us to be able to get our, get our stuff together, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's that's a different conversation. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it is it is exactly the reason that you described. This this is why I do what I do. It's it's so that people can be switched on and they can they can make an emotional and a visceral, physical and spiritual connection, whatever their faith is or whether they're atheists or not. They can understand that there's a relationship there between themselves and that space that they're entering, and then it becomes a part of them, and they carry it. And you share it with their friends and their families, and uh, and you know you're right. Um, students have been texting me. They've been bringing their families up there awesome. um, since they, we've come back from the program, and uh, you know it's a really profound experience. That's for so awesome. And, uh, that's gratifying. Yeah, yeah and amazing. I there was even one uh, one of your students, and I I don't know her name, or I can't remember her name, but she was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna I want to go into Native Studies, and I want to teach." teach about it at the college level. And I'm like, that's so cool that you're able to have that positive change. Cause like, I guess one of the themes of this podcast is spreading goodness and whether that's like on an individual level or, you know, like this is obviously, you know, <laughs> this is a heavier topic than we usually talk about for sure. Um, but it's important. It's important to, I don't know, just spreading goodness, spreading positivity and spreading like just trying to make humanity a better place one person at a time you know what i mean absolutely yeah well and the goodness that you're sharing with your podcast in terms of the, you know sort of usually you talk about your know, sort of outdoor adventure and that kind of thing and um and we do experience that as part of our program in grassy as well like a, a lot of the students have never been camping let alone 
you know, gone boating, let alone, you know, set up a fishnet and then and yeah. filleted fish and learned how to cook fish over a fire. I mean, that's a, that's an adventure for people, right? Like, um, who'd never left the city. So, one well, and, um, and then if that particular spot, Grassy Narrows, if that's the place of their first adventure too, that's always going to have a special place in their heart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear I, year after year after year, um, that the, the students are changed. Like they, they, they tell me that they're, they've changed in, in the way that they see the world and the way they see, you know, sort of Canada's history and their place in it and their roles and responsibilities as citizens, um, have become a lot more rich and a lot more nuanced now. So, yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's why we teach, right? I'm sure yeah. you feel that in your classrooms as well. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, like I've taught middle school for five years now, but that's 500 different students I was able to spend quite amount of time with, you know? <laughs> so, and then you hope yeah, you're like, yeah. you're hopeful you're, you're teaching them, you know, positivity, like positive behaviors and you're being a good role model and all that fun stuff. So. Absolutely. No, it's true. Yeah. And there, I, th- I think in the, I also taught uh, middle school for a year oh, really? in Chicago, Alberta. Yeah. And, uh, it was one of the my frustrations with the work, to be honest with you, is that, well, each school board is different, as you know, but um, uh, it was very uh, restrictive out there in the sense that what these kids really needed was uh, um, some guidance, you know. Um, it was a bit of a rougher school, and what they what they needed was somebody to love them, you That's know, it. and to guide them, you know, um, and listen to them. You know, they, they didn't need to learn all this you know, I know, it's not to say it's not interesting, but I mean, these esoteric sort of uh, <laughs> subjects that were covered in the textbooks. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're interesting and, you know, I'm sure they, they have a, their place in, in the grand body of knowledge that we're all, you know, privy to, but, you know, they don't give a crap. No. <laughs> you know? Well, so like, I, yeah, you know? I taught in the, um, <laughs> the, the poorest school district in Virginia or one of the poorest school districts in Virginia. And honestly, like I taught there for three years and by the end of my third year, the thing I'm most proud of is the fact that I supplied a safe, comfortable environment for my kids to go to every day. And it was a place where they could like share their ideas and feel okay with it without thinking, you know, they're going to be berated or, you know, embarrassed. Um, and that's what I'm most proud of because, you know, the rest of the stuff, because I teach science. So when you said they don't need to know all of it, it just made me laugh because I was thinking about some of the things I was teaching. And I'm like, yeah, they they didn't need to know about meiosis and all that stuff, you know, in that moment. Uh, but they need to know how to think is the most important thing. For sure. So Yeah. And what you gave them was the confidence to be able to go forward and were they to... Uh, were were they to be interested in science? Well, they're they're going to have the confidence and the the self assuredness to be able to move forward and to do that study and uh, and that's that's the key, right? Yeah. Like, for me, that's what I think we as educators are meant to do is to plant seeds and uh, make sure there's enough water and soil um, for them, and then where, where they grow is up to them. Yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. And I'm sure we could talk about that for hours. So. But we'll, uh, I, I mean, I guess the thing, here's, here's the thing and I'll say it during the intro, I'm sure. But basically 
you informed us that the uh, English River and the Wabagoon River systems were essentially like incredibly polluted. And there was a massive amount of cases of mercury poisoning amongst the community. And it shocked me. I mean, we're up there fishing, uh, you know, and consuming the fish we eat and all that stuff. And so that's really what kind of rocked, rocked, rocked me out of the, I guess, just the unknowing. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, that's another ongoing battle. Um, uh, well, we alluded earlier to the, uh, Ontario finally conceding the, um, $85 million to start the cleanup. I mean, it's, it's really, well, you've been out there, right? Yeah. And so when we talk about the river being polluted, um, you know, oftentimes people, when they imagine the river, they imagine the skinny body of water that kind of meanders uh, through the landscape. But what we're talking about in the Lake of the Woods area, the Kenora area and north, is, is a full watershed, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. I mean, those lakes that you're on, those are really just pockets of the river that have accumulated water. Um, all of that is flowing westward. It all flows. Um, and it's vast. So how do you clean that? You know, which is far, not to uh, to give any credence to the neglect, but uh, uh, you know, on the government's part. But uh, really, it's quite daunting. I mean, it that's is. a watershed. Yeah, um, I know. So I had I had a professor in college, an ocean oceanography professor, and basically, when we would talk about issues like this, uh, environment, like you know, pollution, polluted waters, he basically just mentioned this, like hey, where where's that water eventually going to go? Like, it's not going to just magically leave Earth. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's all It all yeah. accumulates somewhere. And so the more it's polluted, the more it's accumulating at some point. Absolutely. So just to give a tiny context to your, to your listeners, um, very briefly, what happened was uh, uh, in Dryden, Ontario, which is about um, 200 kilometers, or I guess about... Uh, I don't know, you guys are in miles, so 120 miles east of Kenora, Ontario, there was a, there was a pulp and paper mill. Called, at the time, it was called Dryden Pulp and Paper. And there was a new uh, form of uh, making paper that, that was, was called a chloroalkali system, and it had two tanks, and the bottom tank was filled with mercury. And the mercury, therefore, got into the effluent. And at that time, they were pumping... Um, their effluent from the mill directly into the Wabagoon River. And there was inorganic mercury um, that was being dumped. Um, throughout the 1960s, there was 20,000 pounds of inorganic mercury dumped into directly into the Wabagoon River. And it being a heavy metal, of course, it, it, it settles in the sediment. And um, there's a, a bacteria that methylates it and, and turns it into organic mercury so that it can be ingested and uh, uh, and the ingestion maintains uh, inside organic uh, well, organisms such as fish and then it works all this way as to the food chain and so the people the Anishinaabe of Grassineros of course being uh, guides at the um, the fly and fishing lodges around there particularly Ball Lake Lodge and uh, where I brought my students for, for the second portion after the marina where I met you um, as well as there was a, a vibrant commercial fishery that the people were involved with as well. So they com- consumed fish 
like as part of the, well, those are main source of protein since time, like since the glaciers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and so it works its way up the food chain, and of course, uh, the pickerel or the walleye, being a predatory fish, um, had high concentrations of mercury in in its meat, and and the people were unknowingly consuming this for a decade. And the other thing about the mercury is that it's congenital, and that it uh, it passes through the womb, through the mother's womb to to her babies. So and so you can have a couple of generations of people who have never even eaten a fish who are passing mercury onto their children. You see, and that's why here still in 2017, though the people eat far less of the of the local walleye than they used to. Um, people are still afflicted neurologically by mercury poisoning, and that's been the battle, the health, the health issues that the predominantly that the uh, the community has been dealing with, along with all of the other. I mean, because because they lost their source of protein there, uh, and because of the poverty, also what happened. So on the economic scale, when the mercury was discovered in 1970, the uh, the the uh, fishing lodge industry. Uh, crashed because people didn't want to come and not be able to eat fish, and so people lost that employment. The, the commercial fisheries, of course, collapsed because uh, that fish was illegal to sell now, and so the the people went from very gainful seasonal employment where they were sort of hunting, trapping, fishing throughout the fall and uh, and winters, and um, throughout the summers they were commercial fishing and guiding, and then all of a sudden nothing. There's just nothing. Um, and so that now you have, you know, 90% uh, dependence, welfare dependence on the government in these communities. Um, and that's just been, uh, that's only a couple generations old. They're still reeling from it. That's so crazy because um, it's like your take, their food gets taken away because it'd be like you're living right next to an, an endless supply of all the food you possibly could ever need, but you can't eat any of mm-hmm. it. And that's right. And then you you have you can't work up like you can't work up there. So where where would people go to work, or would it just be straight unemployed? Well, if they want to stay in the community, they're you know you're lucky to get maybe a job with the you know on the band council, the chief and uh, chief and council, and maybe some of the the services they provide. You know, there's a daycare. Okay. Maybe you'll be a teacher at the school on reserve. Um, maybe you'll be a an you know, one of the welfare officers. And other than that, there's nothing for you. There's nothing for you there. Um, And so that's, and sort of that's going back to what I'd said uh, previously, you know, I think that the fact that it's maintained that uh, sort of stagnant state, economic state, it bodes well for the Canadian state because um, you're, you're going to get, you know, eventually those communities are going to empty out. Right. And then you've got nobody. You've got nobody up there. Wow. Um, which might be their. Which, what might possibly be their agenda? Yeah. No, it's not to say, of course, that they 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 wished the mercury poisoning on the people so that they could eventually depopulate the area. Yeah. But uh, but but it's it's sort of one of those uh, happy circumstances, I believe, for wow. for the government. You know, if I were to look at it half glass empty. Um, well, then that leads us to. That leads us uh, directly into the second uh, and the last portion of the conversation uh, in the chronology is the fact that the reason why they want um, the people to empty out is because of the forest stands that you and your father saw up there. Um, beautiful pine trees, and in fact, you know, 
um, Kenora itself, uh, its main industry since its inception in the early 20th century, or at late 19th century actually, um, was logging, and uh, and they want that uh, they want those trees. And um, throughout the 70s and 80s, the uh, the the equipment, you know, the clear cutting equipment became a lot more uh, sophisticated, a lot larger, a lot more efficient, and they started ravaging that that land. And in fact, that that highway, um, affectionately known as the Jones Road, but Highway 671 from Kenora up to Grassier, that you and your father drive, um, that is a logging road. It's it's paved now. It, it was it wasn't paved even a short time ago. Yeah, and, I, I uh, remember drive we we would drive up to some place on the Wabagoon. Uh, but I just remember that road, it, it's a lot better now. So who, who, like who gave the money to make that road better? Was it the logging industry? Well, I guess it was, the province paved it and called it a highway because, you know, um, there's a community up there. And so they, you know, they needed to pave the road, um, because there were people, you know, driving back and forth on yeah. there. And of course there was the logging up there as well. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure the, uh, um, the, the Northern, uh, politicos like the the MPs who who uh, are representing the political parties in the area had been advocating for uh paved on that on the Jones Road so that the loggers would have something a little bit more smooth to drive yeah. up and down on as well. Gotcha. So they paved it and uh, um but uh so you know and of course when you think of the, the implications of clear cut logging on a community that's living up in the up in the middle of it um, that goes back to some of the, the more precarious economics. So we mentioned, like, you know, since the since the 18th century, they've been involved in the fur trade. Um, and so they have, like, what little they have of their, some of the ways that they were main, able to maintain their sort of life on the land was uh, with their, through their trap lines and to maintain uh, at least, at least they would get out there and, uh, and be able to uh, continue trapping furs, um, which, you know, and they'd bring their families out and whatnot. But of course, with clear-cut logging, you're cutting down people's trap lines, and so it became more and more precarious. So people were not able to meet their trapping quotas in order to uh, to maintain um, their registered licenses with the ministry, the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, and so they would lose their trap lines. You see, and of course, also when you're cutting clear-cutting land, um, then you know where are the moose going to go, right? Um, and so you know, people uh, had to start traveling further and further afield to, to get their moose, and it just became untenable. And, yeah. you know, coupled with the poverty of unemployment, um, people cannot afford uh, the trucks and the gas and uh, to be able to go off for, you know, drive north for and set up a camp somewhere, you know. Uh, and so um, people really started losing their ties to their territory, um, as a result of uh, of the, all this clear cutting, and so that became, uh, you know, of course, people were trying to use their voices throughout the 70s and 80s, 90s to no avail, and then finally, uh, in December of 2002, they blocked that Jones Road. They set up a blockade, and they said there's going to be no more logging here, and that became uh, a local, regional, national, international uh, story. Wow, and um, yeah, everyone from uh, Amnesty International uh, was involved. They're still involved. Um, the World Wildlife Fund, Human Rights Watch, uh, Greenpeace, um, and then, uh, like I said, uh, 
from uh, local uh, academics as well, people who are involved in that, you know, sort of in the environmental sciences, uh, people who are uh, in the, in the uh, you know, social sciences and humanities, um, for example, Native Studies, um, got involved with, uh, with those people on, on the solidarity sort of footing. How long did that and, blockade uh, last? Well, it's ongoing. Oh, really? So, well, it's been successful in the sense that uh, there's no, no longer logging happening on the southern portion of the reserve territory. What, they do, what they're not able to block is, the, you know, the, the traditional land use area, if you will, um, extends quite a, quite a few uh, hundred miles north. And they can't block everywhere, and so um, the loggers have access if, if they were if they were to take other highways up towards. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of like Red Lake and places like that. Yep, I have. Um, a little yeah. bit further east, yeah. So they can go up towards Red Lake and then and then cut into the territory that way, which they do. Um, but as far as uh, the Grafitero's blockade goes, um, they were successful in blocking that. And what came out of that was a court case that worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. So there is a there is a Supreme Court case that concluded in 2014, and uh, the Grassinero's Trappers Association challenged the province of Ontario's uh, right to issue logging licenses on their territory, and that went all the way to the highest court in the country. Um, and, of course, Grassinero's lost. Wow. And, uh, and so... The, the Crown, um, well, the Supreme Court of Canada um, essentially decided that according to the Articles of Confederation and uh, the Constitution of Canada, the provinces maintain the right to issue extractive licenses to whomever chooses. Um, the, the only caveat is that uh, government and industry must, quote, meaningfully consult and accommodate um, with the affected First Nations communities. But the, the, some of the problems with that is that uh, none of that has been codified. So what is meaningful consultation? What does that actually yeah. look like? It's uh, one of those things where it's not... And who gets to make, you know. It's not like defined all the way. It can be, it can be taken different ways. Well, exactly. It's like me asking you, so Chris, can I cut a tree down in your yard and you say no and I say okay well I've consulted you haven't I <laughs> but I'm going to cut it anyway <laughs> oh my god that's crazy so so that's so that's where we're at there and so there there's still there's still sort of uh, there's an ongoing uh, talks with the ministry every year as they release their clear cut plans and uh, there are some people who sit on an arbitration board from the community of Grassy Narrows who sit with the ministry and try to you know um try to parse out what it is they're going to be able to cut and what they're not going to be able to cut. And that creates divides in the community, right? Because you have the, the, the grassroots blockaders, for example, who are trying to say like, look, we can't, we can't afford to have any more logging on this territory. There was a, a, an Ontario government audit that, uh, that happened in 2010 where it was revealed that 70% of grassy narrows, traditional land use area has already been clear cut. Wow. And so the people are like, you know, we only have 30% left at best. That was seven years ago, that audit. Um, we can't afford any more trees to be cut here. But of course, you know, the ministry says differently. And so then they have to arbitrate over which, which uh, areas are going to be cut and which ones are not. 
And so it's very, you know, it's it, it creates uh, a lot of tension within the community itself, right? So you've got you got X pit against Y, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of ugly in that way. Um, Is there any? And so that's sort of that's sort of where we're at. Like that's. Um, well, tell me ahead. if I'm like way off base here. Just you know, like I said, I don't. I, I'm not. You know, I don't know much about Canadian politics or anything like that. But the fact that when I imagine Canada, you know, I imagine there's so much wilderness and wild areas. Um, and it's so, it feels to me, and granted, I've only been to Ontario, where it's, you know, there's a lot of wooded areas areas mm-hmm. and forests and, and lakes and all that stuff. But it just seems to me like it's so connected to its environment that these environmental issues, first of all, should be really right in the mindset of everybody in Canada, but also is there, do they kind of think like, well, we have all of this country North of where we are with all these trees and lakes. Like what, what's the big deal if we pollute some lakes down here and cut some trees down here? Is that kind of their thought like really dumbed down? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, you're right. You're right. And, um, and you know, like I, I mean, I myself, I grew up in a in a small forestry town, um, and you know, the irony is, my, you know, my Ojibwe father um, worked as a welder at the local mill. You know, and yeah. I remember him, I remember him going to these meetings where he he would sit as a trapper, um, and he would go into these meetings trying to ensure that his trap line would not be cut by the very industry that, that he, he was worked working for. at from 6 a.m. till 4 p.m. every day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So anyway. That just kind of um, illustrates you know, just how... Com- these things, right? Yeah, that, I, that illustrates just how complicated it is when even trying to consider these environmental slash economic issues. It really is. And I mean, because, you know, I understand you that the United States has quite a diverse economy, but I mean, really, um, it all boils down to uh, and and I think it's more pronounced even in Canada. It boils down to resource extraction. Really, is the very basis of our economy. Um, the mining, the forestry, uh, the fishing on the coasts that is you know are now. Of course, we wiped off. We wiped out the cod fishery. We wiped out the whaling industry on the east coast, and the uh, the west the west coast now is dealing with uh, the fallout from declining yep. salmon stocks and uh, all the damming of the rivers for the salmon runs and et cetera. And uh, now we've got oil pipelines that are, you know, the pipeline debates are, are ubiquitous throughout North America now, right? And, uh, of course, you've had that big oil spill in the Gulf and et cetera. And uh, the Kalamazoo was ruined and, you know. So the, this notion that, uh, you know, that Canada is this vast wilderness ready to sort of, you can exploit it in little pockets and nobody's affected. Well, the thing is that, Grassy Narrows is a, a great illustration about the fact that, well, yeah, you are affecting people. Yeah, People are being sick. People people are getting sick, and people are losing their ability to hunt out there. You know, they, there's no economy out there for those people. They, li- they, they live on the land. They've done so for thousands of years. Um, and that brings us to sort of a final, like sort of the final bit of pedagogy that I bring for my students as well is it's not, you can talk about the legalities, and you can talk about the the uh, the ecological challenges, and you can talk about pollution, and you can talk about the the, le- uh, the 
the, the, the social stuff as well. But, but also, you know, in, in terms of, uh, native spirituality and worldview, um, like again, like since the glaciers left it, people have been fishing those lakes and hunting, uh, on those lakes. And, uh, those animals and that fish are, you know, the people have grown to understand that those are our brothers and sisters because we have to be in a positive reciprocal relationship with them, just like family in order for all of us to survive. You know, there is uh, an understanding among the Ojibwe that when you hunt a moose, for example, if you are successful, it is because that moose took pity on you and decided because you are a weaker being, you are a younger brother that that moose needs to give itself to you so that you may feed yourself and your family. And the ceremony that was involved uh, before a hunt, to prepare for the hunt, um, the uh, the spiritual fasting that would happen, um, to go out and and to be able to communicate. You know, you hear about these uh, sort of like this lore around the, you know the, the the shamanic practices of trying to read the trying to read the caribou shoulder bone to see where the elk herds are going to be. You know, all that kind of stuff. That that was that was real. You know, there were, there were forms of communication that happened on this land that people had developed over thousands of years. And they understood that their own lives as people was intrinsically and inextricably uh, meant to be in balance with their brothers and sisters, the four-legged, the winged, the two-legged. And everything needs to be taken care of and everything needs to be honored. Um, when you would take down a moose, for example, there was a ceremony that happened. There are certain offerings that need to be made to the land. There are certain offerings that need to be made to the spirit. There's certain um, ways that you handle the heart, um, and et cetera. And this was, um, you know, life on the land was precarious and it was fraught with respect. It needed to be uh, respect and, and, and treading softly was the, the way that you needed to to interact with that environment. Otherwise, you would die. And so, you know, talking about the fact that the, the fish, for example, is polluted and so people cannot go fishing. Well, you know, those of us who are urban-based, you know, we would think, okay, well, so you lose, you lose fish. So you can just go and get your, go get some fish from the store or whatever. But it's, you well, know, it's, it's first the of all, act, I'd have it's to the say, act of the fishing. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to just say, go like, yeah. they've never had walleye out of a out of a lake like the day of because it's the most like you can't replicate that in a story <laughs> that's true that's true it is delicious yeah it's so delicious no that fresh food now is true but i mean again it's it's part of that it's the life practice right it's the it's yeah. the it's the spirit and it's the ceremony and it's the acknowledgement of what it is that you are taking and what it is that your your role and responsibility is to give back to your brothers and sisters in this family that we have called life. Um, and that is the indigenous worldview. Um, and you'll, it's the same from Southern California right up to Alaska um, and all the way, to, you know, to the Arctic. Um, uh, and so you're really treading on people's sort of sense of spiritual well-being as well, um, as opposed to just strictly economics uh, and, and all your, your ecological challenges. So, um, I really do. I do try to get the students to uh, to embed themselves a little bit in that way of thought as well. We do have a sweat uh, sweat lodge ceremony 
uh, we build a sweat lodge and we have an elder come and, um, and guide us through, uh, through that. We make tobacco offerings to water, um, and, and different, different types of things like that. They were, they work themselves into the, into the pedagogy because they really want the students to, I mean, we're drinking that water, yeah, you know, and we're eating that fish, you know, and what a sort of a teachable, what better teachable moment is there to, to sit there around a fire and be like, okay, so we're going to be ingesting this fish and it's going to bring us nourishment and it's also bringing a poison into our body. And how do you feel about that? What is, you know, now if you can imagine that this community um, has been doing this for thousands of years and they can no longer, yeah. um, you know, uh, it's kind of, you know, it dawns on people at that time, right? Like we're drinking water directly out of the lake. Now what if it was polluted with some surface contaminant and then we're going to get sick from this water? Well, you're going to go home and make damn well sure that, you know, you're you're going to locate the source of the pollution and start advocating against it because yeah. it's killing you. Yeah. You know, and so these types of direct experiences with the land, and I'm sure you you get these types of stories on your podcast all the time, where being out on the land and on the water really does bring a simplicity to us as human beings that grounds us down into that very very distilled, crystallized, simplistic relationship that we have with our environment that we are embedded in it we're not separate from it and i think that's uh that's a very important thing that uh that i wanted the students to really internalize and that's part of what it is we talk about when we're out there yeah i feel like that would be a, a very important experience for anyone to to have um you know in some some sort of fashion i mean you know whether that's i don't know going out and I, I mean, we've had like endurance athletes, like mountain endurance athletes on the podcast. So it's kind of like, you know, you're out in the mountains experiencing that land, but also to pull from it and take your water from it and take your food. Like that's, that's a powerful, powerful message that you're, that you're passing on to these students, which is just so awesome and so inspiring. Um, yeah. So, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago, Ontario agreed to an $85 million cleanup of the mercury. And, you know, the first <laughs> gut reaction I had upon reading that was like, yeah, finally, like, you know, cheer. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, I wonder when I talk to Ryan, if this is going to be perceived, <laughs> this is going to be perceived as like a savior thing, or if it's going to be a frustration because it took so freaking long or, if it's kind of a source of worry that they still are going to mess this up somehow? Well, a couple of things. So of course, like on the surface, yes, it's a, it, it is a cause for celebration and it's really, it's testament to what we were speaking of earlier of that, uh, that collective voice. And yeah, it took way too long. Of course it, it of course it did 47 years degree to, but, but but it does it goes to it goes to show that you know things you can make things happen you can force the political hand if it is that you are persistent and articulate enough um, and loud enough um, and and so and so that that gives me uh, some something to cheer for for sure um, how far eighty eighty five million dollars is going to go um, again to clean a watershed as we we're talking of yeah I'm not so sure. 
there are a couple of things that uh, could come out of it that I've advocated for in the past when I've sat down uh, with members of Grassy Narrows with the ministry, and uh, and I will do so again. And that is, I, I hope that there's some employment for the community that comes out of this. When you think of, of a cleanup, it's going to take massive amounts of, of uh, manpower yeah. and, and women power. And, uh, and I really do hope that part of the uh, mechanism to, to have all of this roll forward is to employ as many people from Grassy Narrows and the neighboring First Nation of White Dog, which is similarly affected. They're um, sister communities that were uh, equally affected by the mercury on the Wapagan. Um, that those communities get uh, get some employment and some training opportunities out of this, because you know if the if Ontario is just going to pull a bunch of engineers from Toronto and then put out a kind of a call for call for work on hiring boards, and you've got a bunch of people just kind of you know coming up from Southern Ontario, for example, to to go and work for a couple months on the Wabagoon and make a bunch of money. Um, to me, that would be an absolute waste of, of the human potential that is in Grassy Narrows. I mean, well, bring some people some work for God's sake. Yeah. Well, and it's <laughs> kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, if you want the job to get done right by people. I mean, you might as well hire the people who are going to directly be affected by whether or not the job gets done right. Exactly. And if you're without the, uh, the expertise on, on site, well then, you know, bring some, have some people be trained, you know, like, uh, if there are certain types yeah. of machinery that are going to be operable, for example, you know, train some people on these machines. Um, if, you know, if the machines are going to require some mechanical work, you know, hire the local mechanics. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, that type of thing. Um, even in terms of setting up the, the workers camps, you know, who's going to be doing the cooking, who's going to be doing the, the shopping for the food and the, the setting up of the camp and the maintaining the work camps, you know, get the local communities to do that. Um, there's so much potential to get people on board. Uh, and not only would they, not only would it bring some employment, because of course that's going to be temporary, that $85 million in American terms, that's probably uh, what we're almost half. So it's probably like 50 million American dollars or something okay. like that, or even less. Yeah. Um, when you think about trying to clean up a watershed and all the stuff that's involved, um, that's going to be eaten up pretty quickly. So I'm not really sure exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm as interested as you are as to how it is that that's going to be rolled out. I'll be interested to see that, um, uh, coming forward. I'm sure it's all made public. Um, that's what I'm saying. They have really to am, make their plan public and they pro- hopefully, you know, have some good scientists behind that about what to actually do. Cause I mean, it seems like you said earlier, it's, it's probably a very complicated, it's probably very complicated to even attempt to clean that up or come with a strategy. I would say so. Like when you think of mercury as being embedded in, in the river sediments, the bottom, and you're talking about a watershed, and where do you start? Wow. You know, um, and the fact that water flows and sediment stirs and gets carried, um, you know, you could clean up point A and point B, but uh, by the time, by the by the attempt to clean up point A, you're stirring up a bunch of mercury that's going to flow in point B, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, yeah. um, I'm just not quite sure how to do it. I'm not a scientist or an engineer, so... Um, I'm equally intrigued as to how they're going to pull it off. It's quite, if they're able to do it, that's going to be an engineering uh, marvel. And I would actually, the research that goes into that type of cleanup will bode well for 
similar type of cleanups that are, I'm sure, imminent. You know, yeah. you think of all the different sort of mines, the decommissioned mines, for example, with all these toxic tailing ponds all over the, the continent. Yeah, um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure out uh, some pretty sophisticated remedial techniques, and I hope that some of that's documented out of this cleanup yeah, as well. Definitely. Wow, man. <laughs> that's yeah. So. I mean, I guess what are some ways if if someone's out there listening and this is a new, you know, a new thing that they're hearing about, just like I am uh, or I was, what would be some sort of way to help, even in, like in a the smallest way possible or to the to a bigger way, I guess. Well, I would say, like for those who are listening to your podcast, I would say to. Uh, to seek out what it is that's happening locally uh, and, and to get involved um, to, uh, to try to, to uh, maybe set up some community meetings and um, invite some of the local political representatives, some, um, some, some uh, um, environmental uh, scientists and uh, engineers and social scientists from the universities, as well as some of the, organizations around and start having start having real conversations on a local scale um, as what is actually happening um, I think a really good place to start is always with the water so you know where are our sources of water what is set up on the water sources um, what is being dumped into our water um, are are there viable alternatives how can we get this set up so that the industries involved don't take too much of a hit in the sense of you know you don't want people to go bankrupt and lose their homes and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, people have their mortgages banked on work, and uh, that's that's a, a very and it's a reality that we, you know we, we have to take into consideration as well. But I would really, I'd really start. Uh, I would start with the water um, because without that, we don't have anything. You know, um, and, uh, and 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 yeah. So I would encourage the, the listeners to really just sort of pay attention to what is happening locally. And because that's something that they can touch, um, you know, it's not something they're going to read about in a newspaper, but it's something that they're, they can put their hands on on a daily basis and, uh, and they get involved. And I think that the, uh, the, the example of grassy minerals, um, is, uh, is a great exemplar for what it is that can be achieved if you have hands together and, uh, and, you know, you, you sit down and have real conversations with politicians and, people who and legislators and people who have decision-making capacities and these are human beings too and they have really tough jobs because they're being pulled in a thousand different directions and they have to please the taxpayer and they have to please the worker and they have to please the yeah. stock market and uh, yeah. they have to please you know um uh, and and also you know i don't encourage your listeners to to uh to visit the the local reservations and to start meeting the people that are living there and start forming friendships with the good people that live on the reservations and to ask them to humble themselves and to ask those, those people what they feel those, their challenges are and to see how people can work together and try, try to get some, uh, some uh, sort of um, cooperative movements um, together between the reservations and the urban communities. And I think that, that those are always uh, uh, very enriching uh, relationships to farm and to continue so awesome awesome well thank you ryan this has been i've been this is so good man like i'm about i'm preparing for my school year 
uh, as a seventh grade science teacher. And I'm definitely planning on using Grassy Narrows as like a sort of discussion topic slash case study um, whenever we get to our environmental issues section. So, so yeah, that's awesome. There'll be a bunch of 14 year olds in Colorado that, that are aware of what's going on there. (laughs) That is awesome. And Hey, look out for some different types of funding out there through maybe through, through government or through educational ministries. And, and, uh, if you want to set something up where you can bring up some students from uh, Colorado up to Grassy Narrows, I'd be very happy to facilitate that and uh, get some kids out on the land up there. That would be awesome, man. We'll we'll definitely uh, keep in touch. And, you know, I think my dad said it best after we met you, and he was just like, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> so keep it up, man. Yes. Well, same as you, Chris. Yeah. Um, yeah, much respect. I, I very much appreciate the call to do this and uh, and for your interest in, and uh i'm going to be subscribing to your podcast so i'm looking forward to oh, uh hearing some other perspectives as well yeah definitely this is uh just like this has definitely been the most political slash like you know environmental issues kind of episode <laughs> you know usually we're talking <laughs> to to like i said athletes and people doing but like i said when we we're talking before the podcast i feel you know to be an outdoor athlete or an adventure athlete or whatever uh you got to have the outdoors section and it has to be healthy and you know the the communities around wherever you're participating whatever sport you're in they have to be you know in good shape otherwise you're not going to be able to do the activities that make you happier you know what i mean so Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Amen to that. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, I'll let you, I'll let you get on with your night. Okay, Chris. Well, enjoy the rest of your summer and, uh, best of luck to you come fall and, uh, let's stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Have a good one. You too, Chris. Bye. All right. That wraps up today's episode. And since it was a pretty long one, uh, I'm going to keep this outro short. Um, I do think his final message of looking at your own community and what environmental concerns does your community have. That is probably the best way just regular folk like you and I can make a difference. So I encourage you guys to at least be informed about issues in your community and you know, if you if you feel like something's going on where you live that's not in line with your morals, then you should try to make a difference. All right, preach over. <laughs> uh, next week, we are going to be chatting with Sarah Cooper, who just won the race across America on her bike. And let me just preview it by saying this. That's over 3,000 miles in 11 days on about two hours of sleep a day. It's flipping crazy. (laughs) So uh, I really enjoyed talking to Sarah. So that'll be out next week. And uh, yeah, we'll get back at you. Thank you, guys. That's 50. That's amazing. Uh, We're going to keep doing this. So I said I was going to do it for a whole year. And we're approaching that year. But I'm not slowing down, so I'm just going to keep this up because I'm really enjoying it. I'm loving it. I'm appreciating you guys listening. All right.
Have a good one, guys.